welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Good morning. Welcome to Oak Hills. Thanks for coming out and joining us for worship. Our our passage this morning is is hopefully it's starting to sound familiar because uh, it's a passage that we've been in a couple times already, and we're staying here. For the rest of Lent. So we're in, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, so if you would turn there with me in your Bibles, and then if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So Matthew writes, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your voice to us. Pray for open ears and open hearts to hear your call to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is the uh, second week of our Lenten series where we are seeking to follow Jesus into his wilderness experience that is described in the passage that we just read. And we'll stay in the same passage for the next few weeks. So by the end of Lent, this passage will be in our bones, really, which is a a great thing. And uh, it was the conviction of the early Christians that to be a disciple of Jesus meant to follow him in how he lived his life. To actively engage in all the different kinds of things that he did, as much, of course, as was in their power to do so. Uh, You see, Jesus not only taught about the eternal kind of life, he lived the eternal kind of life. And so it made sense to them that if they wanted to experience eternal life, well, they should then live like the guy that lived the eternal kind of life, lived the way that Jesus did, which is one of the reasons why they established the practice of Lent as an annual reminder to themselves and to all of us that have come after them 
to follow Jesus into his wilderness practice for the 40 days or so before Easter. So throughout this series, we are examining different aspects of Jesus' experience of the wilderness and are asking ourselves what it would look like for us to enter into the, some of those same practices in our life, in our context, in our day. Last week, Mike started off by recognizing the role of preparation that wilderness experiences have for us, for what God is doing in our lives. And this week, we are looking at the experience of solitude. In the life of a disciple of Christ. Which is a little weird uh, to be looking at solitude in this passage. Because if you notice there is a word missing when it comes to the whole idea of solitude. That is of course the word. Solitude. It's not there. Uh, Or any really other word that might imply that Jesus was alone. I mean, there are other times in the Bible where the Bible specifically says stuff like he went off by himself or he was alone and, you know, but not in this story, the one that we're looking at today. And yet, we all assume correctly, I believe, that Jesus is by himself. He is alone in this experience. I've never read any commentator or heard anybody ever suggest that Jesus wasn't alone, that he'd taken people into, into the wilderness with him. Most, I think, it's because of what is implied in this phrase, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We hear wilderness, and our minds immediately picture solitude. It's like, wilderness here doesn't, so much refer to a place, but more an experience, the experience of solitude. The practice of intentional solitude is one of, if not the oldest spiritual practice of the Christian faith. Almost since the beginning of time, people who are hungry for God have practiced the discipline of solitude. And the Christian practice of solitude is exactly what it sounds like, what it seems to imply. In practicing solitude, we purposefully abstain from interaction with people for the purpose of presenting ourselves to God for whatever agenda He has in mind. Let me say that again. In the practice of solitude, we purposely abstain from interaction with people For the purpose of presenting ourselves to God for whatever agenda He has in mind. And really, I guess it's 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 more the first part of that description that is intuitively obvious. It's the getting away from people part. We all know what that means. We what it looks like to get away from people. For some of us, like all the introverts and parents with small children in the room, we love the idea. We hear abstaining from people and we say, yes, sign me up. Like, if you're a parent of a small child or child-ren, you know what it means to be peopled out. You know that moment, uh, it's been a long day and you just need to get away, so you go to the bathroom. 
and you lock the door and you're trying to, you know, use the bathroom, what it's there for, and you look over and from under the door, you see these little fingers coming out, reaching, trying to get to you while you are on the bathroom. I got that visual from Colleen many years ago. And it is like really, really true. Like every parent of a small child that I've ever told that picture to, they go, yes, I know that feeling. And even if you don't have kids, you actually know that feeling. Because, I mean, for some of us, those fingers do belong to our actual young child. But for some, they may also belong to your boss. Or your parents. Or the people. Yeah, it's a visual, isn't it? Uh, uh, the competitors around you, your in-laws maybe, all these people that need something from you, that demand something, that demand that you perform to their expectations. And we would get to that place, when we get in that mode, solitude sounds like the greatest thing on the planet. Get away from people, yes sir, right away, sign me up. Of course, for the extroverts in the room, it's a different story. For the extroverts, solitude sounds like a prison sentence. Like, literally, isn't solitude what they do to punish people? In, like, it's not bad enough that you're in prison. No, if they want to ratchet it up, they put you in solitude in prison. For extroverts, people are our lifeline. We get our significance, our value, our meaning from the people around us. If we're not with people, well then, who are we? What are we? We become that proverbial tree in the forest that doesn't make a sound when it falls. If we're not around people. So talking solitude, can, it can really divide the room. The introvert reflectives on the one side and the extrovert go-getters on the other side. And it can almost feel uh, like unfair. Like you have to be of a certain personality to follow Jesus into solitude. Which is why it's important to remember that the practice of solitude is not simply getting away from people. If all we're doing is getting away from people to be by ourselves in silence, well, really we're just practicing meditation or, or mindfulness, which is really popular right now, like not even in Christian circles. And it's, it's weird, you know, in the, in the, there's been this kind of huge development in the last 25 years that I've been practicing and reading and teaching on solitude. Like, you know, 25 years ago, you'd never hear about this stuff Outside of like the spiritual formation nerd circles, like the monks and those kind of people, all into this. But these days, I mean, you hear about teachings about mindfulness and meditation and darkness retreats, like everywhere. In schools, you would never hear them talk about prayer. It's illegal for them to talk about prayer. There's this huge campaign in public schools teaching kids. You know, mindfulness and meditation, and frankly, rightfully so, right? I, there's, there's huge benefits, both psychological and physiological, to getting away by yourself, slowing down, 
just breathing. But the Christian practice of solitude is not just mindfulness. Not just getting away from people for loneliness's sake. It's getting away from people to present ourselves to God for whatever purpose He has in mind. Solitude isn't so much about our agenda, what we're hoping to get out of it, what we feel we need, what might recharge our batteries. Solitude is about God's agenda and what He wants to do in us. How I personally feel about the idea of solitude, it doesn't really matter because it's not me taking care of me. It's me going to God. And to be honest, that's, that's, that's harder to think about. You see, just getting away from people to kind of get, you know, some me time, it, it, it feels easier, like, it actually feels safer. Because just getting away to be myself, I don't risk. I don't risk bumping into God along the way. Which can be overwhelming sometimes, right? Like, what do you picture when you think of going into solitude to present yourself to God? Like, obviously, it it probably depends on the day. It probably depends on the season of life that you're in, what's going on. But, But sometimes we can have this picture of God, like, sitting somewhere at the end of a really long hallway with his back to us. And he's, well, he's just waiting for us to get there. And, and he's probably getting a little more irritated that by the minute, you know, it's just, why is it taking us so long? My volleyball coach growing up was a lot like that. Like when I was in high school, I really loved the idea of being a volleyball player. And I actually found a team and a coach that I could join, and I, he'd help me get better, and I'd gone to practice a few times. And, but it turns out that going to practice, it involves a lot of running, uh, and, and then doing things that I wasn't good at at all, and then getting yelled at because I wasn't good at doing those things, and then so feeling like a failure. And oddly enough, that meant that I didn't feel like going and I wouldn't go very often and a couple of practices would go by and then I'd you know I'd muster up the you know whatever it takes to get me out of bed and down to the gym and I'd walk in and I could feel I can still see the look of disappointment in my coach's eyes when I walked into practice And once again, we do the whole drill of running, doing things I'm not good at, screwing up, getting yelled at. And, of course, it resulted in me not wanting to go to practice. And the cycle just go round and round. And if that's kind of our picture of God, it can also be how we feel about practicing solitude or any spiritual discipline, for that matter. And I know we can't always help what our images of God are to begin with, but 
But there's a little phrase in this passage here that might, might help tweak it a little. It's this phrase, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit. I've read this passage billions of times and surprised by that phrase. Surprised by the thought of the Holy Spirit being active and leading us into solitude. See, a lot of times we can think of spiritual disciplines or of meeting with God and we picture God waiting for us to get there, for us to find Him, which is, which is true and it's a real thing that happens, but it's not the only thing that happens. I was 10 years old and I had a, I had a crush on, on this other 10-year-old girl named Rosa. She's amazing. She walked around with like a beam of light that followed her wherever she went. And it's like a chorus of songbirds that would chime, would like she would follow her walking. She was walking proof that a rose can bloom in the desert. I liked her so much. So, of course, I never talked to her. Too scary. Too scary. Not going to do I mean, I try. And like I'd run by her when I was playing with the other kids and like look really athletic when I was running by her. Or I'd try to impress her by talking really cool, really loud, loud enough for her to hear me when I was there. I even combed my hair. This girl was worth combing my hair for. At least I tried. Never... Never talked to her though. And so it would have been for the rest of my life had it not been for my friend, Cuico. Called him Cuico because it's, it's, it's a kind of a wordplay on Nestle Quick. Um, so anyway, uh, he got tired of me never having the courage to talk to her. So one day, you know, we're at summer camp and he sets this whole thing up. He tells uh, uh, Rosa to, to go over there, sit on this rock under the tree, up the mountain. And then he comes and he gets me and he says, hey, so she's over there. And I told her that you want her to be your girlfriend. And I know it sounds young, but kids, this was in the olden days. And life expectancy was shorter back then. And, you know, you might not live until your 30s, so whatever. So consumption might get you along the way. So just, uh... so she's over there and she, I told her you want her to be your girlfriend and she said, that she would want to, so now you just have to go over there and talk to her. Come on. So he grabs me and he walks me over there and get to where she was. And we sit down, you know, on the rock under the tree. And after about three seconds, Quico gets up and says, okay, I'm ready. And he leaves. He left me there with Rosa. And I asked her if she wanted to be my girlfriend. She said, Yes. And I never spoke to her again. (laughs) And I know it might seem weird, but this is literally the picture that came into my mind when I was thinking about the Holy Spirit leading us into solitude. Like God is not only waiting for us over there on a rock by a tree, but he's also by our side, coaxing us, calling us, leading us into solitude. 
You see, because God is God, He can be both the beloved and the matchmaker. Both the pursuer and the pursued. He can be both the journey and the destination. Our journey into solitude doesn't start by us gritting our teeth and kicking ourselves out of bed, trying to muster up the courage to get there. It doesn't start with us giving ourselves a pep talk in the bathroom mirror, berating ourselves for our lack of commitment and lack of discipline, resolve to go out there and meet with God and explain ourselves to Him. Our journey into solitude starts with the Holy Spirit leading us there. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's not a picture of a man walking off, trudging off to face darkness alone. It's a picture of the Son being wooed, being called, beckoned into solitude with the Father, drawn there both by and with the Holy Spirit. Unless we think that that's just something that's reserved for only the Son of God. All you got to do is, is thumb through the narratives of Scripture. Front to back. Over and over and over again you hear stories of the Spirit leading His people into the wilderness. It's just what He does. And so we can be confident that he's, called, that he's leading us to. In fact, if we are quiet enough for a moment, we can hear even now at the depths of our souls the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Come away with me, my love. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, earlier I made the the comment that in this passage, wilderness doesn't so much refer to a place as to an experience, which is very true. And I said that because I kind of like the way that phrase sounded. It sounded deep and poetic to me. But, wilderness here also refers to a place. Um... Like the experience of solitude that the Spirit was calling Jesus into wasn't just some internal state of mind for him. It happened somewhere, and that somewhere matters. The somewhere of solitude matters because we are not solely spiritual beings. We are also physical. We have routines and social connections. Our surroundings dictate our attention and drive our identities and our agendas. And so the Spirit leads into the wilderness. Like somewhere else. Where we don't bring along the things that keep us entertained, the things that keep our mind occupied, our music, the intriguing stories or discussions of a podcast. We don't bring our social media with the endless presentation of other people's lives. In solitude, we don't bring the things we use to make ourselves feel important. Our relationships, our position at work, our role in our families, our grades... Because all these become obstacles that stand in the way of us presenting ourselves to God for whatever purpose He has in mind. And so there are practical considerations when it comes to practicing solitude. There is a where that we have to figure out. Now it doesn't have to be in the wilderness, especially 
in winter in the rain. It can actually be in your house. Or in a coffee shop, even though we are not alone, we are anonymous to the others sitting around us. It's, it's some place where we will not be recognized and brought into our networks of performing and needing to meet the expectations of others. You have to figure out a place, a where. There is also an actual when. We have to schedule it into our lives. Solitude will not simply happen. I mean, it might, and when it does, we can enter into it, but... The truth is, with the available technology, connectivity, and busyness of our lives, if we want solitude, we're going to have to be intentional in scheduling a time to enter into it. We also need to make arrangements for the other people in our lives that depend on us. You see, we not, not only do we depend on others, to you know, give meaning and care and frankly entertainment to our lives. Others depend on us too. And so going into solitude will affect the other people in our lives. So there are arrangements to be made. We have to tell people what we are doing. There's child care to manage. We have to plan to be unreachable for a time. Now, a common question that comes up in these sort of conversations and the practice of solitude is, for how long? Like, how long is enough? And honestly, there is no one right answer to that. It all depends on what your constraints are, what the Spirit is calling you into, what's possible in light of your situation and responsibilities in life. So here is where involving someone else in your journey, involving someone else in your practice of solitude is, is, is really uh, helpful, important. Uh, whether it's you know, one of us on staff or maybe you have a spiritual friend that you can talk this through with. We have a, also a team of spiritual directors here at Oak Hills that can help you with that or even you know, come out this Wednesday night. Uh, uh, Karen Young will be leading an exploration into creative prayer and slowing. It will kind of help grease the skids on this stuff. So if you want help in getting started in this practice, the best thing is just contact Colleen Gray here at the church. She will get you connected and you can have conversations and coaching and all the rest of that stuff. Great. But just to give you a suggestion, just as a starting point, nothing sacred here. This is just a suggestion. If you're feeling like, wow, maybe I should try this this week. I generally tell people, find a 30 to 60 minute window. Once a week. I like that window of time because it coincides roughly with what a lunch hour looks like. We all, at some point during the week, have a lunch hour. Uh, Find a place where you will not be found. Set a timer on your phone so that you don't have to keep looking back every two minutes going, how much longer do I have to do this? Then set your phone on do not disturb. (laughs) And then go and be present to God. 
Which is one of those things that sounds really deep and mysterious and spiritual, but it can be really frustrating when you try it. Uh, because it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for us to just be present to God. And to be honest, we can, uh, when we first start practicing this discipline of solitude, most of what we end up working at at the beginning is learning how to be present to God. For Him to do whatever He wants to do in us. Like, most of the battle is going to be keeping our mind from wandering into fantasies or worries or making up mental games to entertain ourselves. And so the beginning, as we practice solitude, it might be helpful if you bring a passage of scripture, a psalm, you know, Psalm 23, always, always helpful. Not to study and dissect and figure out what the meanings of things were, but just simply to give your mind a parking place where it can sit and park with God. Or also maybe just a breath prayer, something that you can pray in a breath, something simple like, God, thank you for loving me. And you just use that breath prayer to keep your mind present to God. The key in the practice of solitude is to remember That we are not in charge of what happens. We don't set the agenda. Which is why in general, not being legalistic here, in general, I don't suggest practicing solitude while doing something else. Like going for a run. Or going to the gym. Or riding your bike. Or doing some creative practice. Or playing your musical instrument. Not to say that those activities are bad. Or that they don't count. Or that we can't encounter God when we engage with them. We can. They are great. We should do that kind of stuff. It is super good. All those are wonderful ways to care for our souls. Worship God. Enjoy the world that He created. Commune with Him. It's wonderful. But in those activities. We are still in charge. And we just need a place where we are presenting ourselves for God to do whatever He wants to do. We are the clay in the hands of the sculptor. We are the block of wood in the hand of the woodcarver. We are the car in the hands of the mechanic. He does the work. Our job is to just show up. And it's okay for that to feel scary. We're not used to doing things like that. Like, we'd never go to a surgeon, just show up, and have him put us under, and as we're counting back from 10, 9, 8, just go, yeah, you know what, I just, you know, just open me up. I'm sure you're going to find something in there that needs fixing, so just, you know, snip away or whatever you do. Which is, again, why the stories of others whom the Spirit has led into the wilderness, it helps us. Because it helps us build trust in God. Going into solitude is an act of trust in God, that He loves us, and that His intentions for us are good, not to harm us. You go through the stories of Scripture, God has used the wilderness to impart vision, to communicate and remind people of His promises, To teach them new things about himself. To purify them. Elijah went into the wilderness. First thing he did. Was he fell asleep. 
And when we woke up, God fed him. Or then there's the case that we're looking at here. Where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But of course, that's next week's topic. So would you bow your heads and pray with me?